seriously popular. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, I'm Natasha Livingston, Royal Correspondent for The Mail on Sunday. Welcome to this special episode of The Crown, Fact or Fiction. Just before we start, I want to say that this isn't the same podcast that you've been listening to for the last 10 weeks. If you're looking for our fact-checking and insights into The Crown Series 6, then you'll need to look for our previous episodes, because this podcast is something a little bit different. But not everything has changed, because as always, I'm joined by my co-host, royal biographer and male columnist, Robert Hardman. Hello, Natasha. Uh, And hello, everybody. We've been asked... If we go back to the beginning of The Crown and analyse all the episodes that have been made, and we thought about it, but then we thought, actually, what would be more interesting is to go forwards rather than backwards. So what this means is we're going to be talking about some of the events that could or would make up a season seven or a season eight of The Crown if they ever decide to make one. Now, at the moment, we're told they won't, but they might. And if they do, we think this is pretty much how it would go. So here comes what we think could be the first scene of Series 7 of The Crown. This, for the city, is the nightmare scenario. February 1974, the last time an election produced a hung parliament. The government, under the Conservative leader Edward Heath, went to the polls in the middle of an economic crisis. Mr Heath ended up four seats behind Labour. Many felt he'd lost, but he stayed put in number 10 and tried to see if a smaller party would prop up the government. Ten days to go, the polls too close to call and the two main political parties are having a rethink. With the possibility of a hung parliament very real, the Lib Dems could hold the balance of power. So enter stage left Nick Clegg. Labour and the Tories now wondering how a deal could be done with him. 
Our first scene takes us to 2010 and it's an election year. In the most recent episodes of The Crown, Tony Blair was Prime Minister, albeit he'd had a slight fall from grace, but a lot has happened since then and he's resigned. Gordon Brown is the sitting Prime Minister and David Cameron is leading the Conservatives. Opinion polls are showing no clear lead for either party and the press is focusing on the idea that we might end up with a hung parliament. Your book went into quite a lot of detail about this, Robert, but the prospect of a hung parliament was quite a big deal for the Queen. It was quite rare for her to have something constitutionally that was quite new and exciting. So for her, this was quite an exciting, intriguing time for her. Well, it was certainly um, exciting, I think, after the election. Beforehand, there was a great deal of worry. She and her advisers would be acutely aware of the political situation and they'd be watching very nervously the fact the polls were pointing towards a hung parliament. In other words neither side getting an overall majority. And in the event of there being a no clear winner, then history dictates it's down to the monarch to pick a winner. And the Queen hated this. In the early years of her reign, she was often having to pick prime ministers. She was often sometimes they'd be ill mid-term, which is when Churchill was ill, when Eden was ill, when Macmillan was ill. She had to choose a successor. And she didn't like doing that. And in 1974, when there was no clear result in the February election, she was left for a whole weekend. Everyone was sort of looking at the palace, waiting for the Queen to decide. This time, the palace sort of go to Whitehall, basically, and say, look, you do the backroom deals. And then when you've got a winner, you come to us and the Queen will appoint that person. So as we went into this election, for the royals, yeah, there were, there were risks of the Queen being dragged in, but they'd done all they could to insulate her from politics. And what was really interesting is just before the election day, the Queen left London. She decamped. She went down to Windsor. And it was made very clear, she ain't coming back to London till you politicians have sorted this out. So that was it was quite an important bit of sort of choreography. But obviously, in royal land, there's another story going on. Yeah, so like in politics, quite a bit has happened in William and Kate's relationship since we last left them at university. Things were relatively smooth sailing, um, but they did break up in 2007, which took a lot of people by surprise because they did seem to be a really solid couple and rumours were circulating at the time that the two of them were in very different places, with Kate potentially being ready to commit, but Prince William kind of wanting to make the most of his youth and freedom, just kind of spread his wings and enjoy himself. And it is actually something that they addressed in their later engagement interview. So obviously, spoiler alert, they got back together. <laughs> um, and uh, Prince William said that they were both very young. They were finding themselves and it was very much they were trying to find their own way about growing up and kind of alluding to this version of events where potentially the breakup was more on Prince William's side. Uh, Kate said in the interview that at the time she she wasn't very happy about the breakup, but that it made her a stronger person. Um, and they both alluded to, yes, yeah, stumbling blocks in their relationship. But overall, you know, they'd had their conversations and their relationship's obviously on pretty strong footing now. It all came good in the end. Uh, but do you, can you imagine the crown? Do you think they'd have had a, a, either a flashback to a William and Kate bust up or a bit of a, a bit of a door slamming moment, a bit of a row, a bit of a sort of tension, you know, uh, this is a couple and they are by, yeah, they've been a couple for years at this point. Yeah. Like all couples, they'd have their rows. Maybe we see a bit of shouting and then perhaps we could have William saying, uh, let, let, let's go on holiday. Let me show you Africa. 
I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the Crown were to kind of indulge in some of the quite cruel commentary in the media at the time, kind of labelling um, Kate Weighty Katie because she was viewed as kind of hanging around waiting for William to propose. Yeah, that was very was harsh. I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, you know, you're a young woman and you've got all that going yeah, on and, 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 and it's all thrown all over the papers. No, I, you're right. And, and at this time... Because she wasn't a member of the family, she didn't have that sort of protection. I mean, I think, you know, when every time she sort of went down the street, there were a lot of photographers there, weren't there? Yeah, so that might be the sort of thing that the Crown would, you know, imagine, dredge back up. And, yeah, maybe we would see her mother, Carol Middleton, consoling her, you know, scheming behind the scenes to, you know, get them back together. Who knows what they would do? But I would imagine that's something that they would pick up on. But as we know, the Crown tends to throw a third storyline into the mix. So we're going to do just that. This is series will be set around the time of the 2010 election, so we think the Crown would be tempted to pull an event from the following year into this episode. The third event we'd include would be the state visit to Ireland. This was a huge event in the Queen's reign, and at the time of the visit, it had been almost 100 years since a British monarch had visited Ireland. So Robert, what's the mechanism of a state visit taking place? Well, a state visit is really the ultimate diplomatic seal of approval between two countries. It's the highest sort of honour one country pays to another. The history of UK-Irish relations is a bloody one. It's fraught with great loss of life and sadness. You've had the troubles from the end of the 60s right the way up to the 90s. But things are changing. You've had the Good Friday Accord. Peace has come to Northern Ireland in the late 90s. And there's much, much closer cooperation between governments in London and Dublin. There's a real wish to put the relationship on a new footing. And the best way to do that, the way you seal that is with a state visit. The Queen is absolutely delighted by the thought of this. And the Irish president, Mary McAleese, she's determined to make this happen too. Uh, I think it's very significant that the two heads of state are both women. And um, President McAleese, absolutely, she's on the way out. Her term of office is coming to a close and she wants to seal the deal by getting the Queen over. The Queen is absolutely up for this. So I think we would, we would introduce a sort of element of these two women having a private chat, sort of saying, look, how do we make this work? We've got to get these governments to agree on this. Yeah, this is exactly the sort of scene that you think the Crown would like to imagine with the Queen sitting behind a desk with all of her advisors going through the minutiae of planning this visit. And one thing I read that's quite interesting is that it was first thought that this visit would only be a day and a half. But contrary to the sort of custom of keeping visits as tight as possible, royal aides kept wanting to extend this visit because they knew how important it was. And in the end, it ended up being four days. Yeah, old fashioned state visits used to last four days. And as the Queen got older, the palace would try and shrink them a bit. And as I say, my book, Queen of Our Times. Apologies for the plug, but that's where it is. Uh, The palace, uh, led by the Queen, uh, were making it very clear that she didn't want a short visit. If she was going to go to Ireland, she wanted to be there as long as possible. So let's make it a big, proper, old-fashioned visit. And uh, everyone was very pleasantly surprised because normally you get the palace saying, "Mm, can we make that a bit shorter? Can we lose this? You know, just trying to shrink the, uh, the, the agenda down. Because whenever the Queen went anywhere, everybody wanted to see her. So she'd get masses of invitations. And in Ireland, she was very keen to do as much as possible. So I think the Crown would show us uh, this uh, back-channel discussion between the two female heads of state trying to make this visit work uh, and compare that to the grubby world of politics where on both sides of the Irish Sea there are, there are elections coming up. So we've got plenty of tension here. We've got, is the Queen going to go to Ireland? Is William going to propose? And who the hell is going to win the election in Britain? 
our story along, we now join William and Kate on holiday in Kenya. You can imagine that the Crown would love to fly a very expensive film crew out to film some footage of their actors riding in the back of a safari jeep. They're in the beautiful sunshine and they're trying to catch a glimpse of some very exciting animals. And then they would edit this trip down to about 10 seconds. We know that William did propose in Kenya, apparently in a cabin on the side of Mount Kenya. And in the photos, it does actually look quite rustic, quite a long way from the pomp and glamour of the Crown's usual locations. It's a lovely setting, actually, Natasha. I've been there to Mount Kenya. I actually remember riding a horse. My wife and I went on a day's riding safari. and it, it's, uh I remember we rode through zebra. We saw some elephants. I mean, it's, it's just like it's a fabulous part of the world. It's a part of the world also, obviously, with very strong royal connections. It was Kenya where the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, became queen famously in the branches of a giant fig tree in the Aberdare National Park on the night of February the 6th, 1952. And, of course, for William, it's somewhere that he spent part of his gap year. He loved the place. He went on to set up one of his first charities, Tusk, to protect African wildlife. So there's a lot of themes we could get into here. You can imagine a lot of things being discussed by the Prince William character as he's probably showing Kate around, isn't he? He's going to be saying, you know, that's such and such an animal, that's a particular type of rhino. I can see him being a bit of a David Attenborough, can you? Well, I think we'd also see the Prince William character looking quite stressed because he later said in an interview that he'd been carrying around the ring that he was going to use to propose for three (laughs) weeks in his rucksack, which, you know, knowing what we do about the ring, obviously it was his mother Diana's ring with beautiful uh, sapphire and diamonds. You know, that's quite a lot of pressure. If that slips out the rucksack and that goes, you know, that's a lot of family history aside from, you know, the the financial value of this ring. Rummaging around among the mosquito spray, the sleeping bags and the, the suntan oil. It's still there, it's still there. <laughs> I think we see William looking, yeah, definitely quite stressed at this point. Prince William later said that the reason he chose Diana's ring was obviously she wasn't around to share in the fun and excitement of this moment. So it was a way of kind of keeping Diana close to, you know, something that was so important in his life. So, you know, emotionally, there'd be a lot going on for William right now, aside from, you know, just being in a fabulous safari and a very exciting moment happening in his life. But I think it's one of those moments that, you know, anybody can identify with anyone who's ever proposed or been proposed to, will find, I think, the build-up to this scene, you know, familiar um, and rather endearing. I can also see the Crown producers possibly bringing in here a narrative strand that we had in the previous series of William's detective who has to share digs with him at university, go running with him, who's always sort of there in the background keeping an eye on him. He'd have had to have had a protection officer on this trip because there are dangers in Kenya, both wildlife and terrorists. But maybe the copper was also worrying about the ring too. Now, in the last series, we saw then Prince Charles asking his mother, the Queen, for permission to marry Camilla. That was obviously slightly different circumstances, as we all know. But do you think it's likely here that the Crown would have, you know, cut across to Buckingham Palace with the Queen, you know, being asked this big question? And more importantly, is that what happened? Well, under the Royal Marriages Act, William did have to get permission from the Queen to marry. No question that happened. In the way that, you know, he's a modern kind of prince. The monarchy is, for all its traditions and conventions, he definitely proposed to Kate before asking. He didn't go and see the Queen first and say, Your Majesty, can I have your permission to propose to uh, Miss Middleton? Uh, You know, days have moved on. So let's get to the proposal. In their engagement interview, 
Prince William was actually quite vague about how this happened, but they both agreed that it was quite romantic. Now, obviously, this is a very personal, intimate moment. And, you know, I'm sure there would be a debate amongst, you know, the Crown writers and producers as to how much detail they should go into this, whether they would recreate it. I would just imagine they wouldn't be able to resist. I mean, you know, you can imagine the backdrop, the scenery, it'd be beautiful. So, you know, I don't think we actually know if Prince William went down on one knee, but I imagine that they would, you know, have to portray that. Maybe he would be a bit nervous, have a little wobble. Who knows? You know, I'm sure there would be tears all round. It would be a very romantic, enjoyable scene. Maybe, you know, highlight of the of the episode. <laughs> I'm quite sure they wouldn't skip over a moment like that. And I think it would be shot very romantically, very beautifully. I'm sure there'd be a sort of campfire going and you can sort of see the camera fading away with the sound of, uh, of, of, of birds and monkeys and maybe a celebratory elephant trumpet. When you see this, for example, you'll know that we are about to get a result in what we're calling a one-to-watch seat. It might be a seat which could be crucial to the overall outcome. It may also involve candidates like cabinet ministers or other well-known figures. And as I said on Friday, with no party able to command a parliamentary majority arising from the general election, my constitutional duty as prime minister is to ensure that government continues while parties explore options for forming a new administration. And so our story moves on and it's back to the UK for election night. The polls have been counted and, as was feared, it's a hung parliament. Neither Gordon Brown's Labour nor David Cameron's Conservatives have a majority. Robert, what do you think was the palace's reaction to this? Well, Natasha, the mood in the palace is one of, um, I do wish should hurry up and make their minds up. There's no overall majority. The Tories are on 306, Labour on 258. The third party, the Liberal Democrats, have got 57. So... There's a lot of wheeling and dealing going on. Gordon Brown is still Prime Minister. He hasn't resigned. Lots of people are saying he should resign. He's holed up in Downing Street. Cameron for the Tories and Nick Clegg, the leader of the Liberals, are in all sorts of negotiations. Just a lot of bargaining and it's this politics at its dirtiest, really. And meanwhile, down at Windsor, the Queen, you can almost see in the crown, there'll be the ticking of clocks, the looking out of the window, the looking at the watches. Any word from London? No, not yet, ma'am. I'm very sorry. And it goes on like that for five days, effectively. It starts on the 7th. It's finally on the 12th of May. A decision is announced, and that is that there's going to be a coalition of the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats put together. They've got a working majority. That means Gordon Brown is out, and so the Queen can come back to London. You imagine this news would be a source of some encouragement for her. But what happens next? Well, she gets in a helicopter, even though it's Windsor. This is done in some style, actually. Um, she comes back to London very pointedly. The monarch returns because a decision has been made. And two things have to happen. Gordon Brown has to come and resign as the outgoing prime minister. And then she has to appoint a new one. And I happened to be in the quadrangle that night, actually. I was writing a book on the Queen at the time, a book called Our Queen. And uh, I was allowed inside. And it was fascinating watching the the just the mood music because it's all quite somber someone's coming to effectively say i've lost and my career is over and then gordon brown turns up in his car with his um, private secretary and everyone's the aquarium is at the door there's a lady in waiting there everyone's looking very somber it's sort of well, you know almost sort of funereal and it's quite sweet actually because the queen also invites 
Gordon Brown's wife, Sarah, and their two boys in. And I remember them coming in in the car behind, and they're ushered in for a sort of farewell. And it's basically, for Brown, this is it. It's, he's toast. It's over. He, he was hoping to have a long time in office, and he hasn't. It's sad. He goes, literally, within half an hour, another car comes in. It's David Cameron. He's come in. His wife's behind. They didn't bring the children on this occasion. And they come in. Uh, and, and everyone's standing outside. It's all smiles. It's all uh, welcome, new prime minister. And he's, of course, absolutely on cloud nine, even though he hasn't had much sleep. And uh, he's taken in to meet the Queen. So I'm quite sure the Crown would rather have enjoyed the Queen meeting this rosy-cheeked young prime minister. Gordon Brown could be quite a gloomy chap. Cameron was always quite smiley. But there was also a bit of a connection there, wasn't there, Natasha? Yes, this actually was quite surprising. I didn't know this. And I've noted the connection down studiously because it's quite complicated. So David Cameron is the fifth cousin twice removed of the Queen, which is quite a mouthful. But it was through an illegitimate line. That's right. William IV, who was the predecessor to Queen Victoria, who was married to Queen Adelaide, didn't have any children with Queen Adelaide, uh, but he had an awful lot of illegitimate children uh, with an actress called Mrs. Jordan. Through one of those children came the line of descent that led all the way down to David Cameron. So, uh, yes, the Queen is effectively appointing a distant cousin, albeit an illegitimate one, to the post of Prime Minister. You can almost see that the Crown would have probably had some fun with the portraits on the wall. The Queen's sort of pointing to a portrait of William IV and going, I believe that's your great-great-great-great-grandfather, Mr. <laughs> to Cameron and, the, and Cameron sort of going, oh, right. But yes, there was definitely a sense of a new beginning because let's not forget that we've had Labour in now. They've, they've had a, a hell of a run. You know, they won the 97 election, the 01 election, the 05 election. They've never won three elections in a row before, but it's come to an end and there's a sense of a new dawn with this coalition. Yeah, and as I say, David Cameron, he's a bit of a sort of novelty for the Queen with this sort of distant family relation, but also the coalition government in itself was a constitutional novelty for her. How did she feel about it? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. She had not had a coalition government before. This was, was new to her. And what I found when I was doing, writing my book, I actually talked to someone who'd had lunch with the Queen soon after this, and she'd said to them that she, she said, I think this coalition government's going to be rather good for the country. She wasn't taking a political side there. What she was effectively saying was, uh, you know, actually, after all these years of it's one or the other, having a sort of partnership in power would have been something new, something different. And what we also were treated to was the extraordinary sight of a sort of coalition government taking shape. Clegg and Cameron had this sort of joint press conference in the garden of Number 10, and it was quite a sunny day in the Rose Garden, and the two of them came out onto the lawn to basically say, well, we've done it, folks. Look, you've got, you've got a joint government. I'm prime minister, but he's my deputy. Let me start before I hand over to Nick. I mean, you talk about this arrangement. This is a five-year arrangement. We did both have a choice. We, we looked at the option. We want to give the country good government. We want to sort out the problems of the debt and the deficit and the problems of public services. It was a start of a, a quite remarkable um, period in political history. And I think the Queen, uh, in the end, would actually have good reason to be grateful to this coalition government because between them, Clegg and Cameron did bring in a lot of reforms that had a direct impact on the monarchy and for the better. Uh, one of the first things they did was they changed the funding mechanism for the monarchy. They, they tore up the, the civil list, um, which, which caused lots of debates in Parliament and created a new funding formula, which the monarchy undoubtedly likes. They changed the rules on 
primogeniture. This was the government that got rid of the centuries-old tradition that boy trumped girl, that a royal son jumped ahead of a royal daughter. It lifted the ban on marrying Catholics as well. So it was very progressive government for the royals themselves. I think possibly the Crown could have had some fun with that. We don't know. But meanwhile, in our episode, things are going to move in a different direction because one of the first big things this coalition government does in in terms of foreign policy is it gets on with that Irish state visit that we were talking about earlier. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It takes 60 minutes to cross the Irish Sea. It took the British monarchy a century. Suitably dressed in emerald green, the Queen took an historic step into the Republic. It didn't exist when her grandfather, King George V, stood on this soil. President Mary McAleese has built bridges. The head of state introduced the Prime Minister, and Kenny said he hoped this event would bring healing. Security could not have been tighter. It's costing 30 million euro to protect the Queen. Dissident Republicans opposed to the peace process have demonstrated capability and threatened to cause disruption. And so now, with a new Prime Minister installed, we take off for the island of Ireland for the four-day state visit. Stops on the trip included a visit to Dublin's Garden of Remembrance, where the Queen laid a wreath, Dublin Castle, where she gave a very well-received speech that called for reconciliation and a more harmonious relationship between the UK and Ireland, and, of course, a visit to Dublin's legendary Guinness Storehouse. Yeah, we we were all rather hoping that she might drink a pint of Guinness, but uh, that didn't happen. But do you know it, they, they do this thing now where they put your face on the top of the pint and they recreate it in the phone? Did, did that happen during the I, visit? I didn't have with, with the Queen, as far as I remember. Well, I'd I love mean, the Crown to do that. They should. Do uh, that. Maybe the Crown. The, <laughs> maybe maybe they would do that, and I wouldn't begrudge them that. I mean. It was one of the most extraordinary bits of sort of statecraft, really, because when you thought back, and I remember standing there watching watching the Queen arrive at the, the presidential residence, and, you know, there was this sense of, can we really believe this? Yes, of course, these are two very friendly nations. Um, the links between Britain and Ireland, I mean, go back, whether through marriage, through sport, whatever you like, through horses. And yet, it's just extraordinary to see the British monarch arrive in Dublin. And everyone's really 
really excited. Although there are, it has to be said, there were protests. There were protests on the street. There were there were those who felt it was wrong, but they were very much in a minority. And then really to cap it all, I think that what set the seal on it was this great banquet in Dublin Castle. There, the Queen made one of the most celebrated opening lines of any speech of her reign. I offer you the traditional warm Irish welcome, Cade Mila Falcha, 100,000 welcomes. Together, we have much to celebrate. The ties between our people, the shared values. It is a sad and regrettable reality that through the history, our islands have experienced more than their fair share of heartache, turbulence, and loss. These events have touched us all, many of us personally, and are a painful legacy. We could never forget those who have died or been injured and their families. To all those who have suffered as a consequence of our troubled past, I extend my sincere thoughts and deep sympathy. With the benefit of historical hindsight, we can all see things which we would wish had been done differently, or not at all. I was lucky enough to be on the balcony uh, overlooking that scene, reporting on it. And once the Queen had said those few words, uh, everyone was just overjoyed by the sentiment and by the sense of occasion. I mean, look at any clip of that replayed. You'll see the face of the Irish president sitting next to the Queen and she just says, wow. And that really, that's what the whole of Ireland felt and much of Britain as well. It was like a wow moment. There is the Queen speaking Gaelic in Dublin. That's history. Absolutely. That pronunciation is not easy, not for the faint-hearted. One thing that I think the Crown would get right here is a detail that you revealed in one of your books, Robert, where you said that because the Queen was so careful about ensuring that this all went smoothly diplomatically, that, as always, went down to the very minutiae of her fashion and the Queen's dress that ensured that there were more than 2,000 crystal shamrocks that were hand-sewn into her dress. Yeah, her dresser, the great Angela Kelly, who, of course, is from Irish descent herself, painstakingly made the Queen's gown um, extra Irish with all those crystal shamrocks. And the Queen was also, she wore a special bit of jewellery, actually, for that trip as well. She was very careful not to wear anything too imperial. She had a sort of Irish harp brooch, I seem to recall. But it just was a diplomatic triumph. The Crown would also make a big deal, I'm sure, of the huge security operation that went ahead with this. It was one of the tightest security operations in modern Irish history. Robert, you said in your book it involved 10,000 police and troops. It was also reported at the time that around £26 million was spent to ensure that Queen and Prince Philip's safety, and this included land, sea and air patrols, including also 120 armed British police officers. So, yeah, you can imagine the scene. It's, it's pretty dramatic. Oh, I mean, the security operation was something else. It was unquestionably the biggest security operation actually in Irish history. And it had the rather weird effect that for large stretches of wherever the Queen went, the roads were cleared completely, no traffic, no no people. While uh, this was a great and hugely popular event, everywhere the Queen went, there would be sort of nobody at all. And then when she arrived at particular places, she would get a very warm welcome. He was second in the receiving line and it lasted for just a moment. 
extraordinary nevertheless. The British sovereign and the former IRA commander finally shaking hands. Martin McGuinness arrived at Belfast's Lyric Theatre in his capacity as Northern Ireland's Deputy First Minister. But it was his past that made this encounter so extraordinary. The Queen, whose own cousin Lord Louis Mountbatten had been killed by a bomb, was on her way to meet a former leader of the organisation that planted it. There was clearly a friendly atmosphere. Good. It went really well. Martin, how was it to meet the Queen? Very nice. One of the impacts of this trip was that it later led to the Queen shaking hands with the IRA commander Martin McGuinness the following year, who obviously once plotted to, you know, murder her family and her troops. So that was pretty momentous. I mean, we know that the Crown tend to crunch timelines together. Do we think that they would kind of tag this on to the visit? I could see them doing it, absolutely. You could see them thinking, OK, let's look, should we just sort of fast forward a year? Or maybe, maybe we could have the Martin McGuinness handshake happen on this visit. I mean, it, it wouldn't be inconceivable for that to be the case. But it is unquestionably true that there was a great act of uh, one of the defining scenes in, in terms of bringing peace to Northern Ireland was the sight of the Queen shaking hands with the man who, as you say, had spent a large part of his life trying to kill her and her family. And David Cameron once told me when I interviewed him for a book, he congratulated the Queen. He said, you know, I, I couldn't believe you did that, ma'am. I mean, that was extraordinary, you know, shaking hands with McGuinness. Uh, the Queen said, well, what was I supposed to do? He put his hand out. Very, very matter of fact, the Queen was about it. How the Queen would have done so in the Crown, I don't know. Maybe as we saw in earlier parts of the Crown series, uh, she was still very sore about the murder of the Russian royal family and, and had a had a bit of a, a tantrum with President Yeltsin in one episode, I recall, sort of lecturing the Russians on, on killing the Romanovs. So maybe the Crown would have had her saying some terse remark to McGuinness, but actually she just took it in her stride at the time. And it just that, I suppose, the McGuinness handshake, it sort of underlined just how far things had progressed with that extraordinary state visit. And so, like every good story, it's time for the happy ending. We think that the Crown would have pulled out all the stops when it came to documenting William and Kate's wedding. There were some iconic looks and locations that the Crown would revel in recreating. Of course, it was a beautiful Westminster Abbey wedding. There was Kate's dress, Prince William and Prince Harry were in uniform, and there were a whole host of celebrity guests in attendance. Now, I actually have memories of this happening, which is the first time that this has happened in the whole time that we've done this podcast. I was uh, just turned 13 and in my very nice village in Yorkshire that I grew up in, I remember we had a little tea party at a friend's house and there was little cakes and biscuits and I do generally remember it was a beautiful day. I think it was a bank holiday bonanza so everyone was having a great oh. time. And yeah, I actually have really happy memories of this. Um, what, what do you remember about this, Robert? Uh I remember it quite well because I was there. Actually. You've trumped me again every time. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm so delighted. We finally, you know, you're on board. This is in your. This <laughs> Not is in, quite a, in the Abbey. This isn't. This isn't. This isn't in in, in Natasha's um, uh, memory as well. Um, no, I was in the Abbey as uh, one of the. Um, media, small number of media were invited because I think I was writing this book at the time. Uh, I was there. I remember I was in the south transept. I was about 18 rows back from the action. I thought I was quite quite a good position because I remember asking the person in front why they were there. It turned out they were a cousin of Michael Middleton's. So we were, really, not, bad. We were not far from the, the outer family, if you like. And we had a pretty good view. And 
you know, what was it like preparing for this? I mean, had you spent weeks planning your outfit like I'm sure many other people had? What was the security like? Talk us through it. It was in some regards just like any other wedding in that, yes, some of my female colleagues had spent a great deal of time wondering about what to wear. I bet. I was wearing a morning coat, morning dress. It wasn't one of those weddings where you turn up carrying a present. That wasn't going to be the case. There was very tight security. Obviously, you had to get there very early and go through all these sort of airport-style stuff. Are we talking hours uh, Early. I, I can't remember that. It was something like a couple of hours early, but it was so exciting. It didn't really matter. And sort of like any wedding, you're desperate to see who else is there, where they're sitting, what they're wearing, all that kind of stuff's going on. And luckily, they had put in some screens, as they do at Westminster Abbey, for guests so they can see what's going on. So actually, we did have on screen the BBC footage of what was going on around the Abbey. So we had a sort of sense of who's arriving, how they're arriving, of carriages and cars and all that sort of stuff. And there's a hush and and a bit of excitement as as William and Harry arrive. And then, of course, again, more excitement. Everybody stands up when the Queen arrives and we're all waiting for the bride. And, you know, it's just an electric moment. You know, there was a wonderful sort of feel in the Abbey because Prince Charles, as he then was, had taken a close hand in decorating the Abbey. And it was sort of full of trees, which was quite unusual. It was very sort of had a real garden feel. It all you know, went according to plan. And after the service was over, the other guests, certainly the, the special guests, because you have to remember there's sort of three tiers of guests here. You've got there's a regular bog standard guest like me. Then the, the, Surely the... you're in the top category <laughs> of it, surely. Uh, well, <laughs> Along with I, sitting next to Victoria uh, and David Beckham. I know, uh, they, were, they were one notch above. So you had general guests. Then you had guests who were going back to Buckingham Palace for the reception. They would come out of the Abbey. They would get got on a fleet of buses and were taken with police escort to Buckingham Palace. And then among them, there was a very sort of select inner group, mainly young friends of the couple, who were going to stay on for the big party that night at the palace. It was sort of the, there were three three events. But yep, the, the couple went in a carriage procession, wonderful carriage procession, the full works, you know, the escort, the household cavalry. It was just fabulous. And uh, as I said, the other guests went back into by bus, got inside um, Buckingham Palace. There was a reception and speeches uh, in the staterooms. And then, of course, the mandatory balcony appearance. No royal wedding. A royal wedding is not complete until the couple have come out on the balcony. This is, again, what I remember. There was obviously just the kiss on the balcony. I mean, that is on tea towels and mugs and it's everywhere. That's probably one of the most famous royal pictures that I remember for sure. Another moment that was obviously very iconic was the dress that Kate was wearing. It was a spectacular ivory satin dress by Sarah Burton um, for Alexander McQueen. Again, if we're thinking about maybe what the crown would do, potentially in the morning there would be a scene with Carol Middleton maybe helping Kate get ready and maybe they would feed back in that narrative of this potentially not even being Kate's moment, but Carol's moment. They've obviously depicted her as very much this kind of meddling character right from the start, which we very much disputed. But perhaps this is a time where they would, you know, feed that storyline back in. 
Maybe. I, I hope they would devote some considerable time to the heroic performance of Michael Middleton. I thought, you know, father of the bride, and you're there giving away your daughter on live TV at the biggest wedding in sort of, you know, in, in, in history, pretty much, and certainly in terms of the global television audience. Uh, you know, when Charles married Diana, it was in the hundreds of millions. This one was in the billions. And he was such a figure of sort of calm. He was such a reassuring presence. I thought it was it was lovely. Of course, they'd also want to perhaps have some fun with the bridesmaid, Pippa. Pippa Middleton uh, became very famous, didn't she, as a result of this wedding? She was almost as big a deal as the bride. Yes, there was a lot of uh, coverage on her appearance, shall we say. <laughs> uh, I think it very much launched her into the public imagination. And yes, there was a lot of commentary on how great she looked in the Middleton jeans. Um, one thing that also struck me looking at the footage and something I'm sure the Crown would have made a big deal about is Harry's role, you know, with William as his best man. You know, I actually thought it was really sad watching the footage because obviously their relationship is, you know, pretty poor these days. You know, and maybe the crown would sort of retrofit all the struggles that they've had now back onto this moment. I mean, when you were there sitting in the Abbey, did things look good between the oh, two of it them? Just, yeah, I mean, they're two brothers. I mean, this was the sort of... Uh, ultimate bonding moment. I think it was a sort of wistful air. I mean, uh, you know, unspoken among almost every guest was that sense of, you know, if only Diana could see this moment. And for a large part of the planet, you know, the sight of those two brothers at Westminster Abbey. The last time the world watched those two brothers at Westminster Abbey had been very different circumstances for their mother's funeral. And here, you know, everything had come full circle. It was such a happy day. You know, it really did have a carnival atmosphere. I mean, I'm so glad that you were having your party up in Yorkshire because it was. I'm sure it was the same atmosphere as, as in the streets. I mean, the streets were absolutely rammed all around London. One little footnote, and I thought it was a very nice touch. About a week later, after the wedding, I remember getting a knock on the door, and it was a special delivery, and it was a nice, very handsome tin, and inside it was a slice of wedding cake, and it came with a note saying, thank you for coming to our wedding. We would like you to have a slice of cake to remember the day. So although I wasn't at the reception, I got a slice of cake. And do you know what? I've still got it. Is it all gone moldy? I don't know. I haven't opened it. <laughs> Not sure you should eat I, it now. I don't, I, no, no, no. <laughs> Uh, if it's made properly and it's got enough booze in it, it'll last forever. Well, that's so, got to be the key, the alcohol. I, I have got, it's now It's now a Hardman family heirloom, a slice of William and Kate's wedding well, cake. I'm sure the cake is rock hard as well, so definitely don't try and eat that. Yeah, well, I mean, we know that the Crown love to portray awkward royal dancing at various different parties. They love to imagine <laughs> what these are like. As you say, most people aren't allowed. It's exciting to imagine this. And there were some very, very excited reports in the Sunday papers about what went on at the after party. He said, unfortunately, you were there, Robert, because, you know, nope. it would have been great. Maybe you were there and you just can't remember because you had such a wild time. We'll never know. Um, but yeah, the details were that the singer Ellie Golding kicked off the first dance with a version of Elton John's Your Song. But then things quickly moved on and there was an energetic routine performed to the Grease classic You're the One That I Want. I can just picture it now. And then it all descended into apparently what was described as a marathon and raucous party with revelers drinking 
something called Crack Baby Cocktails, which is a concoction of vodka, passion fruit and raspberry liqueur and champagne, um, which is apparently designed by the royal favourite bar Bougies. Um, I don't know if that still exists, but I definitely remember reports of them all falling out uh, of yeah, this bar. The Booge, as they used to call it. Yes, yeah. that was definitely a favourite hangout of the young princes. Yeah, and apparently this raucous drinking continued until past 5am and Prince Harry at one point donned a Moroccan fez to perform his best man speech. Um, and there were some various references in this to William uh, being potentially uh, bald <laughs> and Kate unfortunately having to deal with this and there were also two female party goers who told the Mail on Sunday at the time that the dancing was fun and outrageous adding there was a chicken dance with lots of arm flapping which was particularly good fun I'm sure the Crown would love to have recreated that Oh, can you imagine the dad dancing? Well, it would have, I think, been a very happy note on which to end fictitious episode one of fictitious series seven of The Crown. We've greatly enjoyed imagining what they'd have done with it. I think maybe we put a bit too much fact and not enough fiction in. Uh, however they decided to break down those particular years, you could not do another series of The Crown without including these three absolutely essential elements. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for what is the first of a series of special episodes of The Crown, Fact or Fiction. Yes, it's been great fun to imagine what the producers and writers of the series would do. I hope you think we've uh, we've done them and eat justice. Just because we love to read them, we'd also like to share a few of your comments that you've sent in. Yes, we have a lovely comment here from Jane Marie Darmon. I hope they've pronounced that correctly, Jane. And she said, thank you for this podcast. I have thoroughly enjoyed your insights and demystification of the series. Cheers from Australia. And we actually have had quite a lot of listeners in the Commonwealth, which is something I wrote an article about. So thank you to everyone who has tuned in. We've got a lovely one here from Wendy Gilbert. What a wonderful series to listen to. Thank you, Robert and Natasha. I'm not sure what I'm going to do once we reach the end. I found your podcast just fascinating. Well, Wendy, I hope you've enjoyed this extra episode of The Crown that we've conjured up for you. And um, we'll be conjuring up a few more. And I hope you enjoy those too. Absolutely. And if you haven't already, please do leave us a comment and a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on which events you think a future episode of The Crown might feature, and maybe even which actors you'd like to see playing your favourite royals or politicians or famous faces from the past. If you're feeling brave, send us a voice note on WhatsApp. We might play it on the next show. Our number is in the show notes. But for now, thanks so much for listening to The Crown Fact or Fiction. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Goodbye. Goodbye. Our hit series, Everything I Know About Me, is back for a brand new season. And this time, our guest needs no introduction. But here's one anyway. Hi, I'm Gemma Collins, and this is everything I know about me. If you think you know all about Gemma Collins, think again, because this is the GC as you've never heard her before. It's been exhausting. And ashamed. And I was really heartbroken because I was pregnant and he was having an affair. Unfiltered. I have had an operation as well years ago. I have a designer vagina. Yeah, baby. I don't have camel toe. Unbelievable. And then they advised me, you need to have a termination. And, uh, yeah, I remember that being really stressful. Everything I Know About Me with Gemma Collins is out this Thursday wherever you get your podcasts.